0: Coming up on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast.
1: We live in a global epidemic of sexual violence, but we also just live in a world that's really shaming around our sexualities and really policing and shaming around gender. We live in a world that says it's not okay to be vulnerable, or if you are vulnerable, it has to be only in certain ways. And I think what happens is that people don't see themselves as having to do any healing work around this stuff. And so then they don't. And so when somebody that you're working with kind of just brings something in that starts to ignite a part of your psyche that you're not ready to face, I think that's when people start acting out. And I, I think the best safeguard you can do for that, I mean, like if even if you're just listening to the show right now and you're thinking, like, oh no, I've done all that healing, we never finish healing. And when you are a healing practitioner, you most definitely never finish healing because we have to keep healing in order to keep doing our work. And there's always going to be people who just kind of ignite something in us. So yeah, like why do people do that kind of harm? What's going on inside of them? There's stuff that they haven't worked on.
0: Welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast, a weekly conversation series with leaders in psychedelic culture, designed for therapists, healers, retreat leaders, and passionate enthusiasts. Presented by Maya and hosted by me, Eamon Armstrong. Welcome back to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. I'm your host, Eamon Armstrong. We live in a global epidemic of sexual violence. And Spaces for psychedelic healing are not only not exempt, but there are factors which make sexual violence more likely in these spaces. Join us for the second half of our two-part series with author and psychotherapist Laura Northrup as we understand why violations occur in spaces of healing and what we can do about it. We open by discussing the spectrum of ethical violations in mental health care generally and psychedelic spaces specifically. We go over the conditions, both psychological and cultural, that contribute to harm. We discuss accountability, both of individuals involved and the community generally, which brings us into a conversation about bystandership and deplatforming. We end our conversation with a review of Laura's new book, Radical Healership, and How to Build a Values-Driven Practice. Laura is an author, educator, somatic psychotherapist, and podcaster. She is the host and creator of the podcast Inside Eyes, an audio series about people using entheogens and psychedelics to heal from sexual trauma. Her work focuses on defining sexual violence through a spiritual and politicized lens, mentoring healing practitioners in creating a meaningful path, and supporting the spiritual integrity of our collective humanity. Her new book, Radical Healership, helps practitioners build a values-driven practice In a profit driven world. And now, here's Laura. I'm grateful that we've had this beautiful conversation to kind of tee this up. And I feel like we have a really warm rapport. And I just very much trust you to help us find our way to the best of our ability. It is so dark that people come for healing and there's actually more abuse. And it's also a wide spectrum of kinds of inappropriate behavior. And so oh, I really want to get this right in a way that isn't this kind of reduced binary because that narrative isn't leading us towards healing. And then at the same time, the psychedelic community needs to be accountable to that this is a major, major issue for us. And I want to make sure that we, that we hold that really firmly. I just want to name as we step into part two that there's, there's some gravity to having this conversation, especially in this moment when this conversation's really come to the surface in a way that it's been needing to for a long time.
1: Yeah, you know, I I think that everything you're saying needs to be said. I appreciate you saying it. And what you're saying really points to a larger dilemma in the way that our dominant culture looks at sort of good, bad, harm, not harm, victim, abuser and I think it's very much coming from white supremacy, from Christian supremacy, where there's this impulse to kind of say, okay, these people are bad and these people are good. These people have caused harm and these people have experienced the harm. When in actuality, we are living at the intersection of all of these things in our lives. And part of, I think, the, the really deep spiritual path in all of this is to actually embrace and look at ourselves not as so sort of separate from each other or better than each other or worse than each other, but to actually really come back into our full humanity around this. And I think for people who have caused harm, I think for people who are bystanders and for people who are survivors, and obviously for many people, they inhabit all three of those categories or two of them it can just be really hard to like live into an embodied way, the complexity of it all. I will say, you know, in the psychedelic world, there are certainly some people who are chronic repeat abusers that personally, I think, shouldn't practice. And obviously, it's it's always easier to talk about the people who are like the Jerry Sanduskys of the world, where it's like, okay, you're you're a person who has done very, very bad things repeatedly. We can really point to that and say that. But so much of what harm is, is the gray area or the... Maybe you've done really good work with a lot of people that you've worked with and you abused two of them. And I'm not saying like that that abuse is excusable at all. Like 100% I'm not saying that. But that it's really complicated for us in the society we live in to actually look at that in a really complex way and see people as both good and bad.
0: Well, I... I hope we're able to do that today and I think one of the beauties of a long form format like a podcast is that you do get to kind of rest and pause and maybe even in a moment go back and say well actually you know I, I just said that but let's look at it from this angle too so I think we'll have an opportunity to do that and like anything we won't get it entirely right and I'm sure that some people listening will wish it had been said another way perhaps but I feel really good about having this conversation and about the nuanced nature of it because there are As we've discussed in part one of the podcast, there are situations where someone, because of their sexual trauma, may be testing the boundaries of a therapist in a way that that therapist or that practitioner may not understand, and harm may occur with a lot of nuance and a lot of gray area. And what you said so much during part one, which is going to continue to be said a lot in part two, is training, 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 mentors, 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 getting support from the community, for yourself as a practitioner to make sure that you're not in potential violation or causing harm, and also as you're witnessing it and as you're getting support if you yourself have experienced harm, is that the answer, it seems to me, that these open community conversations overall.
1: Yeah, and something we didn't talk as much about in the beginning of the interview in the first section that I would just say is at the core of being able to do this work and not harm other people is truly to do your own healing work. And I really mean like in a very, very, very deep way. And I have said previously um, publicly that when you become a healing practitioner, that is a very sacred role. And you commit yourself to healing to a degree that you might not do if you didn't become a healing practitioner, right? Like there's stuff about myself that I don't actually feel like I really, really need to explore. But when you're working in a realm where you are, you're the instrument, my psyche is the scalpel. My, my psyche is the hammer. <laughs> and a hammer can be used to hurt somebody and it can also be used to build a house that you need to make sure that your psyche, your spirit, you know, your emotional realm is really, really cared for and really processed in order to not harm other people. And so because of that, even if I didn't want to be in therapy, even if I didn't feel like I ever needed to do another psychedelic journey in my life, I will. I will. It's part of my job to like clean myself inside, scrub myself out with a Brillo pad.
0: It's so important to have that ongoing work and to do it, I think, in relationship, in community, and, and to be able to get that feedback too because we don't know what we don't know. And in my opinion, it is unlikely that the world is full of evil people. I think it is more likely that the world is full of traumatized people who are behaving in varying degrees of levels of consciousness who are causing harm. Let's start with why a healer might cause harm. And you spoke about someone who's really like a serial perpetrator. There's that level of harm. And we can talk about why someone might be in that category. Maybe it's a certain kind of, certain personality types. But also these kind of various spectrums of harm. Let me throw in a figure here that you've quoted before. Because just to to kind of like locate our audience, you quoted a figure of self-reporting inappropriate behavior from Mental health professionals not in the psychedelic community. And maybe actually let's start with that real quick so we can get a landscape.
1: Sure. So basically, this research doesn't exist in the psychedelic realm. But what we know of a broad range of research in the US looking at a variety of types of mental health pl- clinicians, so that could be a social worker, kiss worker, it could be a therapist, an analyst. What we know is that 7 to 12% of people self report that they have crossed an ethical boundary of a sexual nature with one or more of the people they've worked with during their careers. So that's seven to twelve percent of clinicians and then they may have abused maybe just one person or many people and sexual violations could be things like it could just literally be like you asked somebody who you shouldn't have you know your client out on a date and the date never happened, that could be, that is a sexual ethics violation. And it could be, you know, all the way to you sexually abuse someone physically. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a big number. And it's also just a lot. It's heavy on the heart to even know that and to really face it. It's a huge issue in healing work. And it's a huge issue in the psychedelic realm. And we don't know how often it happens. But I mean, we definitely know from many public call outs that this is, a huge issue
0: yeah and the, and the the figures that you're quoting here are self-reporting and this is in a situation where there are it's like a licensing board there's a formal process that we're not really experiencing in the gray market for psychedelic therapy or even or even psychedelic therapy generally so it is a lot and as you you mentioned kind of a spectrum of asking a client out on the date that that's a violation can you offer a little more clarity on the kind of like spectrum of what an ethical violation in terms of sexual conduct can look like.
1: Sure. Yeah. So I think that, and this also maybe goes into that piece about, you know, there's some people who have a more kind of sadistic harming behavior. And then there are other people who are more maybe opportunistic and not necessarily doing this repeatedly, but doing it once in their career or, or maybe a few more times in their career, but are not necessarily like seeking out victims. So In the sadistic realm, I mean, people also just sometimes do in psychedelic work completely non-consensually, aggressively violate the people they're working with. So like I have heard multiple stories of this where somebody is high on medicine and the practitioner, you know, essentially rapes them in some form. So there's that. Then there's all these subtle ways, you know, like... Are you asking this person um, to be your friend first because you kind of want the friendship from them and you're kind of maybe thinking it's going to go towards a romantic relationship eventually, just like little grooming pieces, little things where it's complicated, but in the therapy realm, we do not have sex with our clients. We don't have dual relationships. So you can't be friends with the person who you're also clinically working with. You know, this gets really complicated in the world of medicine work where you're not doing psychological work with the person because plenty of people sit for each other, you know, sit for their friends and family. There's so much dual relationship. So it gets really complicated. And I wish there was like a blanket statement I could make on like, here's what's appropriate. Not, but it's, it is really complicated and and requires a lot of attention. And then one of the really big things that happens is that people get into what they sort of quote, consider consensual sexual relationships where the, the client and the therapist or the client and the guide have started a consensual sexual relationship, and I'm putting consent in air quotes, because consent is greatly compromised when there is a power dynamic. So in the realm of therapy, this is 100% always sexual abuse. If you are working in a therapy context that is psychedelic or not, you should not be having sex with your clients. And I mean, it's not okay. In most cases, it's reported as traumatic later. And a lot of the people who experience this develop symptoms that are really similar to incest survivors, because part of what incest is, is somebody who has a power dynamic, using the power to violate someone else who they're like very emotionally close to, which is in a therapy context, you've got two people who are emotionally close. One person has a lot of power and they're abusing the power dynamic. So there can be these sort of similarities. And I think this gets more complicated, this piece about consensual romantic relationships, when you enter into the world of people who are doing medicine work in a larger community, and they're not doing psychological work. I cannot comment on that specifically in terms of what's appropriate, but it, I think it just gets more complicated. Like, if you are friends with somebody and you also have done some medicine work for them and then you also develop a romantic relationship with them at some point that may be violating and it also might not and and this is the arena where i mean we just we just need to understand what sexual harm is so much more in order to not cause it and it's a part where we just need to do our own healing work to avoid that truly
0: When I I think that the power piece is what's so key here. So when you're describing a sort of a non-therapeutic relationship, but it's like a community relationship with medicine, what I think about is kind of like the bad guru archetype, often a male, often the sort of like leader of a community, someone who has a lot of power, and maybe they're not in a therapeutic relationship, and they're not adhering to the kind of ethical practices that would be appropriate for that. But it's a power dynamic that is being violated with this charismatic leader energy. I feel like that can happen a lot in psychedelic spaces, this sort of like bad guru or the kind of like seducing shaman kind of vibe. And so I think if there is a power differential, then that's where a community needs to be very careful about the possibility of abuse.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And a lot of times when I talk to people, they're like, why would somebody want to be romantically involved with?" their practitioner in a way that wasn't actually going to be useful to them. And I think this is an arena where it's for people who don't practice in a psychological way, it's still good to get some training on this just so you understand where the limits are. So for example, many people fantasize that if they were in a relationship with someone who they think is truly healed, that they would be loved just right, that they would never be in an abusive relationship, that they would be healed by that relationship. And that's a reason why many people think it would be nice to partner with someone who is a healing practitioner. And I think sometimes guides don't really realize how much they're being idealized or they don't realize how much projection and what in the world of therapy we would call transference is coming toward them. So again, even if you're not going to work in a psychological way, It's great for guides to just understand what transference is and kind of how it operates and understand a bit about idealization and even, you know, getting an embodied sense for yourself. What do I feel like when I'm being idealized? A lot of us feel there can be a good feeling like, oh, I'm being idealized. But I do notice for myself, there's also this kind of like, feeling like in there that's something about this isn't quite mutual anymore or something about this is feeling like I'm being imbued with qualities that are ignoring that I'm a regular person. And I think as a guide, building a deep inner sense of when you, you know, sensing into this is what idealization is. And this isn't good. It's not good for anybody. And it's also not good for the guide, like merging with idealized versions of ourself and living from that place eventually causes us all pain.
0: At the beginning of part two of this podcast, you spoke about how it really comes down to doing the work, doing your own work. And this idea that there are unconscious elements of ourselves that may be operating that we are not aware of, I think is really key, particularly when we're looking at this kind of subsection of practitioners and healers who are committing violations that they themselves might not really be even aware that this might be violating But what is leading to some of that behavior are things that people are also not really aware of. And I think that that's a key thing to touch on is like, why might people violate someone in the context of a healing relationship? What is it that's going on in their psyche that is creating the conditions for that?
1: Yeah, I'm going to just like name white supremacy and Christian supremacy and capitalism as some big factors in this. And it's I think a lot of times it has to do with like a classic example, people are like, well, I'm starting this relationship with somebody that is my client. I know no one would understand is a lot of times what people say. So I don't want to tell anyone that I'm doing this. Okay. Anytime that we start doing something with our sexuality that we feel is so sort of unacceptable that we have to keep it a secret, it's and it's like the basics of just like love and pleasure with another human being, when we get into the part where we need to keep it a secret, that's a sign. That's a sign that something is off. And like I said, people will say like, well, people wouldn't understand. It's very important. We interrogate that because if you're doing something, you think other people is going to say is abuse, which it's widely understood that it is. It's time to look at the, the secrecy around it. And I think if you look at the way that we are socialized around our sexualities, it's very normal to be very secret. We just think that that's just the air we breathe. We're like, okay, yeah, this is really normal. It's just like how it's really normal to go on a date with someone and introduce alcohol as a way to kind of like lubricate the situation and make it like feel easier. And again, we have to kind of look at like, what's going on that we have to intoxicate ourselves to embrace a romantic or sexual connection. And I'm not saying you shouldn't drink on a date, but more like there's all these ways that we just totally normalize having an incredible amount of shame and then covering that up or pushing it away somehow in ways that oftentimes also can lead to some form of trauma or abuse.
0: Everything we're talking about so far, I feel like sits in a category of ethical violations, sexual harm, problematic behavior that is also somewhat understandable in the context of someone's unconscious actions, that with an intervention, someone would respond to them and be like, oh wow, I see that I've made a mistake and I want to change it. There's another category of violation that we touched on at the very beginning, which is properly predatory behavior that is happening in a kind of serial capacity. Is this the is this an appropriate distinction to make?
1: I think there's some blurriness between them, but I do think more of the reason I kind of like, I do think people kind of focus, they're like, okay, there's the bad apples, there's the bad people, they do the bad things, and they're the people who have done multiple accounts of abuse. And I'm sort of like, let's open the conversation up. There's a lot of different things people do. I, I think though that there's plenty of people where, yeah, they might cause some harm and they might, be a little bit accountable to it. I think there's very few people who cause harm and are totally accountable to it. I think there's a lot of people who cause harm and they are excusing it or they're denying it or minimizing it. And yeah, I think sort of not that everything has to be on a spectrum, but then I do think there can be people who are like know they're causing harm. But those are the people it's such a small subset of people, although I do hear people saying like, oh, but I think in the psychedelics world, there might be a bunch of those people. And that is very possible because there's a huge power dynamic in psychedelic medicine. You're working with someone who's inebriated, really vulnerable, probably really traumatized. And it's definitely a place where if you were somebody who was seeking out an arena to abuse people, that this is a place that you would probably be drawn to. So there may be a higher number of people who are sort of filling that more sadistic behavior role. But yeah, I think there's just a wide range. I mean, and especially, I just want to highlight that piece. I very rarely hear people be accountable. Or if they are, it's like, well, okay, yes, I see how I did that thing. And they didn't like it. And I acknowledge that. And I had my own reasons for doing it. As opposed to like, no, I just actually did something really bad to someone else.
0: Yeah, the, the, the question immediately when you said that was like, what does full accountability look like when it comes down to sexual harm within a healing relationship?
1: I don't know. And it's such a good question. I also, when I said it, had the thought, okay, Laura, what is accountability? I don't know. But I definitely know that part of it is being honest about what someone has done and not being very open and curious. I don't want to minimize what I've done. I don't want to deny. And I actually just want to think through like, what did I do in this situation? A lot of people say accountability is doing your own healing work. A lot of people would say accountability is like finding ways to support the survivor. So sometimes that looks like things like monetarily, like helping them to get access to therapy. Sometimes what people think accountability is, is that you shouldn't be practicing anymore. I mean, there's, there's so many pieces that I think, well, A, I don't think we know the answer. B, I think that sometimes we talk about accountability and it's almost like we're avoiding the grief So we're never going to make the harm not have happened. And I I do think sometimes in circles where people are like, this person needs to be accountable. It's like, there's almost this way that's like, I want to hold on to the idea that I could somehow make this not have been so bad. You know, to me, accountability is doing the work in some way, whatever that means, so that more harm doesn't happen. So like either for the person who's caused the harm that they do not harm anyone else that they are working with because we're speaking about practitioners specifically here. And also, you know, survivors can also cause harm when they're really, really deep in their trauma. So like supporting a survivor to get access to therapy and access to healing is also supporting them Mm -hmm. to be safe enough and held enough that they're not going to cause that harm, like send it off to someone else. I mean, one of the things I talked about at the Horizons conference in December is that so much of what all of this is, is just this endless cycle of abuse. It's just like, I'm harmed. I can't deal with it. I harm somebody else. They can't deal with it. They harm somebody else. And, you know, people talk about this really powerful role that you can take on of being like a cycle breaker. And to me, like accountability would also be breaking the cycle. Just really committing yourself. I am going to do whatever it takes to never cause this kind of harm again.
0: I want to come back to this place of how do we stop the harm, um, which of course, that's what everyone wants to know when we're having this kind of conversation. What do we all do? And I want to come back to it, but I want to rest a little bit more on this idea of maybe it's certain personality types or certain, certain kinds of people who are, there does seem to be a distinction between mistakes and people who are consistently dangerous. And I understand that it's a, it's a spectrum and maybe thinking about it that way may, may have its own kind of problems but there do seem to be like certain kind of narcissistic personality types or certain types of folks who in a sense need an intervention that's different than saying hey you need to go to this training and understand like why it's inappropriate to ask someone out on a date that you're seeing versus someone who sexually assaults someone in an ayahuasca ceremony like to me there's a distinction sure. there and it, I think there's a distinction around personality types. And you you made the comment that that some people feel like a lot of those personality types may be drawn to psychedelic medicine, which is itself a like super problematic and scary thing. But are there, in your opinion, certain sorts of people who behave in this way that, that you can keep an eye out for and be more aware of?
1: Yeah, so one thing I would say is with people who cause harm and are have no interest in acknowledging it, no interest in healing around it and are just generally like very predatory, the community surrounding them may need to be the people who are doing the like if they're not willing to do the healing work, we need to be doing the healing work enough that we can actually respond to the harm they're causing. I'll also say like people like that should not be practicing this this work at all. They should not be in a position where they're doing work with people who are vulnerable. And yeah, I think it, there's totally a ton of narcissistic defense, I would say, in somebody who is acting that way. And I w- hesitate to get into narcissism because it's like real popular right now in pop psychology and people are like, top 10 science, you're a narcissist. And as a clinician, I, I really hold that frame in a very specific way. But anyone who is making someone else feel totally powerless... Making someone else feel ashamed, you know, making someone else feel enraged, like huge, intense emotions, the the emotions that come out of being the target of sexual violence is somebody who probably can't handle those emotions in themselves and probably has been made to feel all those things at some point in their life. And a hallmark of narcissism is really low shame tolerance. And from that place making other people feel that so people will make jokes that like being narcissistic means being self absorbed you can be self absorbed and not be like sadistic predator but th- what i think about is if you start to feel bad about yourself can you actually feel that oh i feel ashamed right now or oh i'm struggling with like low self esteem in this moment or Do you just completely bypass that feeling and just immediately make someone else feel it? And that's what a lot of narcissistic defense is. It's a lot of projecting shame and aggression toward other people. And also I'll add that narcissistic defense can be done in an inflated way. So there's a lot of emphasis on this. People are like, well, this person really sees themselves as so superior to other people. But it can actually also be very common in a deflated way. And deflated narcissism can look like things uh, like, for example, if somebody says, oh, you caused this harm. And the person says, I know, I'm so bad. I'm so bad. I'm the worst person in the world. It's also completely ignoring or like not really taking in the shame experience. And in effect, like, sort of projecting it back out to the other person. Like, oh, you're you're being a perpetrator to me by telling me how bad I am. And I could go way deep on narcissism and I won't because that's not what this whole show is about. But, but sure, narcissism, very much in that world.
0: So the listeners may or may not be aware that there have been some recent high-profile cases of allegations of sexual harm in the psychedelic community. There are... Even guides to how to avoid sexual assault in ayahuasca ceremonies. Like it's a major problem in our community. And I'm curious from your perspective, you spoke about this self reporting 7 to 12% of mental health practitioners who've had inappropriate sexual moments with a client. Do you think that the psychedelic community, as we sort of call ourselves here, the group of people who are most interested in psychedelic medicine, do you think we have a unique problem in? the number of issues that are happening in terms of sexual assault within our community or maybe we're we're more vocal about it and it's happening everywhere what's your take on what why this is going on
1: i don't feel like i have enough information to say for sure that there's like a bigger problem i do think that and i've said this probably 20 times at this point in the last uh, in part 1 and in part 2 but um, we live in a global epidemic of sexual violence and so sexual violence is happening everywhere. And it's especially happening in places where there's really big power dynamics, imbalanced power dynamics, which is the case in psychedelic therapy and psychedelic guided work that is not technically a psychotherapy. So I I do think that it's really prevalent. There's a huge problem. I would not be surprised at all if it's more so happening in the psychedelic realm than it is in a non-psychedelic realm. I think this also brings up some interesting stuff about reducing the harm and, and trying to prevent it. So sometimes I think in the psychedelic world, we can become really insular and sort of like, oh, this is our problem. Or how are we going to teach people about consent and things like that? And this isn't just the psychedelic community's problem. This is a global problem that all of humanity is facing, even though we aren't necessarily consciously all facing it together. But it, it is a huge issue that's way beyond the psychedelic world. And also there's many communities that have developed community responses to harm. Uh, Kink and BDSM communities have vast information and knowledge about consent and navigating consent that I think actually is really helpful and useful for people in any type of situation to be thinking about consent obviously, like with transformative justice and restorative justice, there's a whole world of political work that's gone into thinking about how to create accountability and how to create repair or how to support survivors. And so in a lot of ways, I mean, I do think a lot of people in the psychedelic world are starting to branch out to that stuff. But there can be a kind of a way that I think just that insularness of like, oh, but are they psychedelic informed? It's like, it doesn't really matter. We're all humans. We're all talking about consent. We can learn so much from different communities about preventing harm. Yeah, and I think this is something really critical for people in this world to sort of be more open to people and hearing from people who aren't even necessarily in the psychedelic realm.
0: You know, I totally agree. And... It's interesting. I think that it's important for us to go outside of the community for resources and understanding. But there's also a value of considering ourselves a community in our response to trauma and harm, which is that when you are in a community, you are accountable to each other. And when we speak about the psychedelic community, I consider myself a member of the psychedelic community. And it matters to me what goes on in a psychedelic therapy session where someone has is harmed. That I don't know the people. I I have nothing to do with them, but I've considered myself part of the psychedelic community. I consider myself accountable to that, and I think that there's a value to that. And I think that we're kind of in this moment. If we consider ourselves a community, that we need to be accountable to the fact that this harm is happening, and we need to have a response indeed, that's part of what is going on with this podcast right now. This podcast is about supporting psychedelic practitioners in the context of sexual harm that is occurring in psychedelic spaces. And so for me, as a podcast host, this is part of me being accountable to the community by taking someone like yourself, who is really an expert in this conversation, and saying, hey, everybody, let's listen to what Laura has to say about this. We need to be Aware of this. So I think that there's a really valuable role of considering ourselves a community in terms of preventing harm and healing.
1: I think this is a really good point. And one thing I like to look at is the way that we deal with sexual harm in our dominant culture is that we either ignore it or we punish it through the prison system, which eventually actually mostly doesn't work and often traumatizes the survivor. And that is like sort of a non-community-based response. And I think there's a lot of value in looking at this through community because we are in community and punishing somebody after the fact doesn't actually prevent harm from happening. It just punishes them once they do it. And we also know from looking at the statistics that sexual violence, technically, it's illegal. You can technically report it to the police. And that being the the way that you can go about it has not reduced sexual harm. So, and and also, I mean, most people don't report, sexual harm can be really complicated. So it really points to developing a very robust, safe community. And this benefits everybody, not just preventing practitioners from causing sexual harm, but it benefits all of us to have a robust and, and healthy reaction to any type of harm, both that we could we could cause or someone else could cause. So I think that's really critical. You know, and I also wanted to say one thing that keeps coming to mind from the question you asked earlier about whether or not this is more maybe rampant in the psychedelic realm is psychedelic medicine work has a very sort of spiritual component to it. There are a lot of ways that communities can form that can start to feel like a spiritual community if it is not explicitly, sometimes it is explicitly a spiritual community. And I just think a lot about the Catholic Church and the rampant sexual abuse in these arenas where there is a big power dynamic around a spiritual community where some people start to almost be perceived again, like they they are merging with their idealization, like they're closer to God. And that that just makes people so vulnerable. And there's a way that there's something that happens in psychedelic medicine spaces that I think can actually kind of mirror that. And that it's just, it's at high risk. There's a big risk of harm when there's that much power difference and one of the people or the multiple people who are sort of the, the practitioners or the guides or the priests are somehow having access to something that is so divine that you have to go through them to get in into relationship to
0: Mm, I wasn't even thinking about that. That makes so much sense. And, you know, that kind of like the corrupt guru archetype is similar to that sort of thing of like, you need this meditation guru or this priest, or when someone is your access point to a mystical experience or a connection to the divine, that that's like the biggest power differential you can have because they're basically a conduit to God. I think that makes so much sense. I want to come back to this idea of community response. And I want to speak very specifically in relation to being a podcast host. One of the ways that a community can respond to violations is through deplatforming. And there are calls to deplatform certain people at, at different times. And, and I wanted to ask you about this because as a podcast host, not on this podcast but on my other podcast podcast, Life is a Festival, there were allegations about someone who I had on the show and I chose to take down the podcast episode and it felt appropriate at that time. There are also times where someone might reach out to me with a private story that's not public and say, hey, can you take this down because I had this experience with this person. And it becomes difficult to understand what your role is as a community member, what are the conditions under which I would take down a podcast? Is it a series of public allegations and then my reaction as a community member is, okay, well, I'm going to do my limited role, which is to take down this podcast, versus like a conversation one-on-one with someone where they're like, well, it's, it's not a public thing. Really, I guess the question is, like, how do you as a community member judge these sometimes very thorny, difficult situations when you're wanting to lend your support, but you're also not wanting to unfairly exile someone or deplatform someone who, who may not deserve that. And it's very difficult to know how to behave in that situation.
1: Yeah. So I think that this really points to a dilemma that arises in being a bystander. And It can be really difficult when you're not the person who caused the harm and you're also not the person who is the victim of the harm to know how you should respond. And I also think this is really difficult because we live in a world where oftentimes there's a lot of secrecy about harm that's happened. People are afraid to speak out publicly. You might be feeling like very alone in making this choice. And going back to this piece about community... I think it's really important these choices are actually not just made with your own individual psyche and and especially with your own individual trauma. Like many people are confronted with harm that someone else has done and they get triggered. I don't want to be bad. If I do the wrong thing, this is my fault. You know, there's this way that the sort of the, the material of the wound can start spreading to everybody. And so for that reason, like the first thing I would say is you don't have to be the judge you don't have to be the person who decides this on your own this is something that you can bring a whole group of people together to discuss and so the other thing about people who responding to people who have caused that kind of harm is that there can be a real breakdown in creativity just canceling someone is not it's not a response that lends itself to a lot of nuance and I, I say this with a lot of delicate care. If we canceled everyone, who ever did a bad thing, we would all be canceled. Like I've done so many things in my life that I'm not proud of. And I'm sure you have too. <laughs> um, we all have. And obviously, sometimes people do things that are so harmful that we need to speak publicly about them. We need to warn other people. We need to have big, big, big accountability process around that. And... It's so important for us to understand that as human beings, we are all capable of causing harm. And sometimes the way that we react to people causing harm is that we get really uncomfortable with the ways that we're capable of causing harm. And so we take this opportunity to project all of that onto this really bad person. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, that person is so, so bad. You know, and I talk and teach about this stuff all the time. And it's so compelling for people to be like, well, I would never do that. And one thing I say to people is, that's not the right statement to respond. Like, what you need to ask yourself is, what conditions would have to happen for me to cause this kind of harm? That is the the response that is, I think, creative and offers a lot of rich opportunity to grow beyond this moment. Just saying I would never do that or that person is bad or cut that person like completely off is not necessarily creating growth and healing. And there are some people where I'm like, deep platform all the way. I mean, I think it's it's really complicated. You know, there are just some people where I'm like, whatever you are doing is so harmful, we need to de-platform you. And I don't think that's always the case. And and this is very, this is where you get into the stuff that is like very hard to talk about. And it's very, very complicated. And I speak all of it with a lot of humility and love. It, it's so hard to respond to violence.
0: Well, it is not your responsibility to complete the work. Neither is it yours to walk away from, which is one of my favorite quotes from the Talmud. The only quote I know from the Talmud. But... I, I think that that's where we get to with this, is we don't have a solution. And in, and in fact, anyone who is like, it is exactly this way, I know exactly what to do, that's the kind of black and white binary thinking that I think creates some of this problematic stuff to begin with. Like, I'm a good person, I would never do that. But then all of a sudden, you're in a sort of like, kind of a ethical violation, but you're not aware of it because it's not the big, bad, scary thing that you would never ever do. Like, understanding the gradation of various kinds of harm and knowing that you yourself can create harm. And then the response I think with all of this is like conversations. It's hard to talk about. It's complex so we don't want to talk about it. But what's great is that we talk about it. And so for example for me as a podcast host when you say you're noticing that this idea of deplatforming has a lack of creativity. For me as a podcast host I'm like, "Oh yeah, no, I actually I wasn't really thinking about it that way, but I really feel that. Does it have to be that black and white? Like that person is now exiled, that content is now unavailable versus something like, "Okay, well we need to honor that this has happened and we need to publicly talk about it and not and with certain people it's it's more extreme and needs to be handled in a more extreme way, but for a lot of people it's not about, "Okay, everything that person has ever done is now wrong and bad and and they need to be canceled but it's more like we need to be open about the fact that harm was done and and, the, and there's a process of healing that harm that involves being open about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, one thing that you could do for example in this case with the the episode that you took down, you also could you could either leave it up with a disclaimer, you also could release another episode where you go in depth and talk to people about the harm that happened there's so many ways that that you could keep the conversation going and the only thing i would say my disclaimer is i wouldn't want anyone to take what i've said here and apply it to a situation as though i've consulted on that specific situation because truly i both support deplatforming and i also support in certain situations not and and i think it's it's just it's complex it's nuanced I'm really big on talking about how we just have to live with more complexity. And there's such an impulse to erase complexity and just, yeah, get into like, nope, this is good. This is bad. This is right. This is wrong. And actually life is really freaking complex and responding to harm is really complex. And of course, another huge thing I want to say about this is it's very important that we also listen to what survivors need. So if a group of survivors came to you and was like, "We don't want this episode on here," you know, I could see how you might be like, "Okay, great, let's take it down." If they came to you and they were like, "We don't care if you leave the episode up, but we want we want you to reach out to this person and let them know that you know about this harm and here's why, here's how that would support us," that that piece might be what you do. But it's it's very important to listen to what survivors need. It's also important to not lose your own agency. And again, like this is the part where I'm like, we don't have to make these choices on our own. So sometimes things are asked of us that are really important for us to engage with. Running around being really, really afraid of the situation and just kind of doing what people say or reacting really quickly. I mean, I know like when an allegation of harm comes out, everybody's like, how are we going to respond? And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You might respond by pausing for a moment and letting this settle and finding yourself in it. And when you find yourself in it, then from there, taking in what you've been asked to do or taking in what you think might be good to do, and that there's not a need to just sort of react, but really to like what I would maybe call more like to respond.
0: Yeah, I love that this needs to be a slow move at the speed of trust kind of energy, trust with yourself and with others, and that we want to be wise in foremost changing the conditions where the harm was done. And that's on an individual level, but that's also on a community level and and hopefully on a societal level is how can we change some of the conditions in which the harm was done so it won't happen. To listen to and just center survivors in what they want and also to do it in community and to not feel like, okay, I'm a podcast host. I need to like solve this situation by whether someone's on my podcast or not. It's a bit of hubris, but also like to be... In community. And that's something what I I really like, that we are the psychedelic community. We are talking about these things and we are doing our best to respond wisely and to recalibrate as more information becomes available.
1: Yeah. And and one thing I just will like add a little addendum here is if the harm is happening right now, that is when you respond very, very quickly. So when I say like responding slowly. I mean, the harm has happened and it is not happening anymore. If you, for example, become privy to some type of sexual harm happening in a psychedelic context that is happening right now, and people are at risk right now, I would say reacting in a way that is immediate is important. If this is something like something happened a year ago, and there's nobody who is currently at risk of harm... And there's more of a, you've moved it fully into responding to past harm. That is where I'm like, okay, there can be some slowness about really thinking through what needs to happen here. And I just want to make that distinction because I do think sometimes people know about harm and don't do anything because they're sort of slowly working through what to do. And people actually can be like, need our help, like need someone to actually intervene.
0: Do you know if there are any efforts to create any kind of governing bodies or like support systems for this kind of challenge within the psychedelic community? I know that in medical health field, in the medical health field generally, there's a licensing situation, so that's part of how that's dealt with. Do you know of any initiatives around the psychedelic community to, to we have a place to go where, where survivors can go to get support so that we can go as a community to understand how to handle things?
1: Yeah. So there's the psychedelic survivors support group that's happening right now that is, I think, really going strong. I think a lot of people are getting a lot of support there. And then there are a bunch of people moving towards governing, sort of some kind of governing body or some kind of like board or something that you could be reporting harm to. This is all coming together in the last year. So like, I think a lot of it is, it's really in, in its infancy, but certainly there are a lot of people who are working on this. And of course, it gets really complicated because people do all different kinds of work. So it's like, okay, is this board going to be for the underground and above ground? What kind of it, it it gets very, very complicated. And and I'll also I just since we're on the topic, I want to add because people always ask me, well, the problem is the underground. There needs to be like a governing body. And you know, the problem is that these people aren't licensed. And I just want to point out that licensed clinicians cause a lot of harm. Obviously, one of the most high-profile cases in recent past is the situation with Richard Jensen and MAPS where, you know, that was completely above board and still there was sexual harm. So I I like to, like, really point this out because I think even that sort of thinking that's like, oh, well, it's just these people. And if we just had the licensing board, it's like we're living in an epidemic of sexual violence. It's a licensing board is not the only thing that can prevent it punitive responses after it's happened don't actually prevent it. I mean, I do think decriminalizing drugs would be hugely helpful because then people don't feel afraid to come forward and possibly jeopardize their community and all kinds of things. So decriminalizing drugs, plus on that. But yeah, this is an issue where we all need to do a lot of healing work for it to transform. And I appreciate people putting together survivor support stuff and governing boards. Like 100% support that. But As individuals, we need to remember that that's not going to be the only thing
0: that stops this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely plus one on decrim. I think that if we want to change society, let's stop punishing people for changing their consciousness. What I just keep seeing over and over again in this entire conversation, part one and part two, is that it's about bringing things to light about bringing things to the light of consciousness, your own trauma, your own bringing that to consciousness, your own propensity to cause harm yourself, bringing that to consciousness as a community, bringing to consciousness what's happening. And I think with decriminalization, it's easier to bring more things to the light, more things to awareness. But yeah, to me, I think that that's really the key to all of this is more awareness, more training as a practitioner, more community awareness, more community conversations. And I just want to just applaud you because you are a major light in bringing more awareness to this. And I love that you have some levity and joy in the way that you are going about very difficult, nuanced, and, and painful work that, that we can have a conversation with a full width of human experience while talking about things that people are not wanting to talk about anyway and and not able to talk about with the range that you do. So, yeah, I really appreciate your wisdom in getting through this, this very difficult topic together today.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I love that you bring that point up because we also need a ton of joy. We can't always be in the pain. The joy it gives us the fuel to be in the pain and I also think it's ultimately it's the thing that it's like what makes life really exciting and worth living.
0: Well then let's end on a note of joy. You have just published a book. Oh yeah, I have. <laughs> right, we've done we've done two full hours without even discussing a book that you literally have just published that is actually extraordinarily relevant to psychedelic practitioners. So we're not going to excavate that book today on this conversation, but it is for the population of people who are listening to this podcast. It's like exactly right for them. So let's just take a moment in the end of our conversation today to discuss radical healership and um, just a little bit about what's being offered in that book, particularly this notion of a kind of anti-capitalist psychedelic healer, like how to be in the business of psychedelic healing while transcending business itself. So Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's let's just 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 tease us with this book and it'll be in the show notes so people can go and get it after the conversation.
1: Yeah. So basically, I like to say that it's like a self-help book for healing practitioners. It's basically a book that is about if you are thinking about becoming a practitioner or maybe you already are one but you're maybe early on in your career. However, I had someone read the book who's 25 years into their career and they were like, Laura, this book is definitely making me rethink how I run my practice. So it's oriented to people kind of at all parts of their path. Yeah. And it's just like a lot about the underlying spiritual, emotional, psychological stuff that comes up in what it means to be a healing practitioner and also to do this thing that is running a business. And it's very anti-capitalist. I'm just like, capitalism, no, I'm over you. Let's end it. Let's let's transition to something else. You know, but the fact is, we live in capitalism. So you do actually have to engage with it. And I talk a lot about class in the book and yeah, and just and a ton about integrity. And I definitely think it's if you are a healing practitioner, you know, I poured my heart and soul into that book for you. Cause like the other sort of a political under, it's very political the book. But a, a political sort of thing that's happening for me around it is that I don't want to live in a world with so much harm. And we need to do so much healing to stop living in a world with this much harm. And like to everyone listening that's a healing practitioner, that's us, man. Like we're <laughs> we are the delivery system. We're the ones who are trying to help people to actually live in ways that are really healthy. And so I want us to succeed. I I don't like capitalism, but I want us to financially succeed. The book also goes way deep into how like money is not always that's not the only way that you're rewarded for your work. Like it's also about a sense of meaning, purpose, all that. So I think it's a really good book. If I if I say so myself. (laughs)
0: Well, I'm excited about it, and I think it's going to be really valuable for people listening. And you anticipated, I end every podcast with the same question, which is, if you'd like to speak directly to psychedelic healers and practitioners, what would you say? And you kind of already did that, but I will still allow that space for you, where we've now had two hours of people's time, and these are people who are out to heal out to help out to support and you are in the business of supporting the supporters which is such a wonderful business to be in and you're in the business of changing business which is a great business to be in too and i definitely definitely check out radical healership in this last moment of the podcast if you can speak to psychedelic practitioners healers directly to the listeners who've been with us what would you most like to say
1: Oh man, I've kind of already said it, but basically like, I just want to inspire you to do your own healing work and just to do it at the depth needed to be able to be in the world with so much integrity. And even in like the really hard moments. And, you know, I know people are like always talking about how cool psychedelic medicine is and they saw rainbows and it's beautiful and whatever. But like everybody listening who does psychedelic work, like we know journeying on psychedelics to heal is, is actually really, really hard. And so just like as much as I can send a deep, deep like bow of gratitude to everybody for their healing, I send it to make it through those very, very difficult journeys in order to come out and be able to just be of the highest service.
0: Oh, I love that. I feel like we need, we're going to need to have you back on the show. <laughs> you know, I feel like we've spoken about one dimension of your work. I also want to plus one, too, on that podcast series that you did, Inside Eyes. We'll have a link for that in the show notes. I also know that you tend to be active on Instagram, so we'll have your Instagram on the show notes. What's your Instagram?
1: It's at Laura May Northrup, and May is spelled with an E. Okay.
0: We will have that in the show notes. Is there a recording of the Horizons talk
1: you know, there is, I think you have to pay to get access to it. And I think it's like you pay to get access to the whole conference. So I, I feel like it's maybe like 50 bucks. And then you can listen to my 10 minute talk. Yeah. I mean, it's a great talk. It's a great talk. But I, I don't know. Uh, yeah,
0: it might also come out for free someday. Who knows? Okay. Well, we'll have a link to the whole Horizons package. If you weren't able to attend that conference as I myself was not able. Anything else that we should point people to to follow your work and connect with you?
1: No, I think that's about it. But I do want to say thank you so much for having me, Eamon.
0: It's really been a lovely conversation about an unlovely subject. And so important. And so important. And there's a reason why we're doing our first ever two-part as we discuss sexual trauma in the context of psychedelics. It's just so important. And I know that there are people who are listening to this who are like, I'm about to go sign up for a training. And that is what's spreading the knowledge and the awareness that's really going to make their less harm and going to help heal harm, which is the business that we're all in anyway. So yeah, great guest. Happy to have you. Thank you for joining us on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please join the Psychedelic Therapy Facebook group to talk about it. You can also share it with your friends or leave a review on iTunes so more people can discover the show. The psychedelic therapy podcast is presented by Maya, a platform designed to help psychedelic therapists manage and measure client journeys. You can head to mayahealth.com to learn more. The show is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide mental health or medical advice. Thanks for listening.